We're live. You're joining us here. Thanks for being here. We are here with Ed Blankmeyer and Ty Blankmeyer, baseball family extraordinaire. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce Ed here first, but uh, before I do that, Bobby, how are you? I'm good, guys. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, so if this is your first episode, this is the Morning Brushback Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett, my compatriot, Bobby Stevens, out in Chicago. And today we're here joined by uh, two legends, Ed and Ty Blankmeyer. Ed, Ty, how are you guys? Good, man. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Hanging in there. Do you guys get any snow? It's snowing in Chicago, apparently. Uh, no snow. We're, we're good here. It's been the best spring we've ever had in the Northeast. And no so. baseball. It's so and no baseball. No baseball. <laughs> it's, it's, unbelievable. it's unreal. So if you guys don't know the Blank Myers, Ed is the former uh, head coach of St. John's University. 829 wins. Um, man, your Wikipedia is long, my friend. Ty, I'm trying to find your Wikipedia. Where's yours at? No, I don't have it. That's why you can't use the word legend with me, man. <laughs> one day. One I day. Um, but under Ed's uh, leadership, six Big East regular champion, regular season championships, uh, five Big East tournament championships, ten regional appearances. Like I said, 829 wins. Um, and now, Ed, you are the um, manager of the Brooklyn Cyclones and the Mets field coordinator. So big career change this year. And Ty, um, Ty, you're 26 or 27 now? 26. You're 26 in 188 days, actually, according to Baseball Reference. So, little, little, little fi- Ty fun fact right there. Uh, but yeah. Ty was a St. John's alum, uh, drafted in the 36th round by the Cincinnati Reds, and now you're a scout for the Milwaukee Brewers. So, heck of a baseball family. We're we're excited. To, we appreciate you guys coming on the show, um, Bobby. It's snowing in Chicago. Why? <laughs> Why do you live I, in Chicago? I hate I hate it here. This is brutal. It's beautiful I, out. It's gorgeous. I have here. text messages. I woke up this morning saying what's happening, and thank thank goodness we don't actually have baseball going on right now. I have teams that should be playing, and it's I mean it's snowing. I'm looking out the window here. It is. It's not like oh you know it's sunny outside and you get a you get some rain like a downpour. This is this feels like the the dead of winter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that sucks. So. So, Ed, the, the biggest piece of important information I found on your Wikipedia page, which is impressive, do you know what it was? You and I, no. have, the same, you and I have the same birthday. Same birthday. Nice. All right. <laughs> December Virgo. 15th. December 15th. Yeah. 16th. 16th. Day off, Dan. Wait, it says 15th on there. No, I'm a 16th. Oh, I got to edit yeah. your Wikipedia page. We got to fix you, this. You can't read everything off. you read. Oh, it's fake news. It's Take fake news. Point. Although that's, that's my so brother's birthday, if that's a good thing. My my brother's born on the on this on, on September fifteenth. So, wow. Okay. Well, duped me. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about, uh, Ed, you took a a big new job here at the Mets, and Ty and I talked about this a bunch on on our podcast. So Ty, for those of you listening, Ty was on my podcast, which was called Dear Baseball Gods. Um, a while back, and one of the things that Ty and I talked a bunch about was how all of us have our identity wrapped up in ball as a ball player. And you know, Ed, even though I know this is a like an exciting career change for you, you're jumping from college ball. And, you know, you're an ABCA uh, board member. Like you're this this honestly just like this storied college coach, and now you're in pro ball. How does it feel for you and your family no longer being the St. John's coach? Has that been how have, how have you dealt with that? 
you know, it, it was hard. Uh, there's no question about it. Uh, when you spend 24 years at one place and uh, the routine is that entrenched, um, it, it's, it's a funny feeling when you really make that decision. Uh, this has been a conscious decision for some time that I decided to, um, you know, accept the challenge of pro baseball, having opportunities in the past. Uh, but um, I just I just felt the time was right. Uh, I think it, I think in life you have to you know it, it's to me it's about challenges and obstacles and doing things that uh, you know really challenge your personality and challenge where you want to go. Uh, I, I'm at a position in my life that uh, you know I, I thought I did what I could with collegiate baseball. I thought I've done what I could with, with St. John's. Uh, I think St. John's is in a very good place. Uh, it's a wonderful school with wonderful people working at that school. I miss it. I miss it very much. But I'm also excited about the opportunity in the Met organization as um, as the manager of Brooklyn Cyclones. Hopefully, who knows? But hopefully, we'll get that underway. And 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 being the extended field coordinator. Um, so. Uh, I, I just believe the organization is uh, and, and, the, and the people that I'm involved with are, are good people and, and they have uh, the right direction. So excited. You know, it's like, it, it, what, what can I say? You get to a routine, you get into a little bit of a rut. And this is, this is to me is more of a, you know, a challenge. It's, it's just more of an ex, more excitement, new learning, new people. So um, I'm anxious and hopefully we can get to uh, get going. Yeah. And, and Ty, tell, Tell me about you because you and I crossed paths at the ABCA convention this year. Um, obviously, like we had known each other for a little, little bit, but we hadn't met in person until then. And, you know, this was just going on where, you know, your dad was potentially going to do this. And you had a lot of feelings about it too, you know, because you grew up in that dugout. So, I mean, it's not just your dad, it's your whole family. I mean, you guys were St. John's family. So how, how have you, you know, dealt with it? Um, at first, like I, I had, um, I've expressed my opinion to him. Um, just recently being on the playing on the pro side, not too long ago, and kind of being immersed in the pro side. Like, hey, it's it's not the same as college baseball. There's, you know, just the way the way it is. And I expressed like it's not it's not what you think, you know. So I just kind of informed him on that. But as it got going, it made sense to me. I mean if you look at St. John's as a program and what he was able to do within the program with the help of other people, you know, you, you just look at that and you're like, Hey, he's done almost as much as you could do with a program like that. And with that being said, I mean, I think it made me and uh, my family realize like you're always want to challenge yourself as a person and, um, find ways to grow. You can't always stay in your comfort zone. So um, more than anything else, I think uh, I was able to look at that and look at what he did and say, you know, at 65 years old, that's actually a really, you know, admirable thing to go out and say, Hey, I want to go try this professional side and give it all I got, which, you know, he has. And unfortunately, you know, we've been hit with this coronavirus, but you know, there's a lot more to be, to be done. And that's the way I kind of looked at, at that initially you know there's it's different you know I went to St. John's to scout and 
he's not there and that, that that's kind of weird um that's always going to be weird because i grew up on that field in that dugout but um like i said like you know change is a good thing too so yeah yeah so ed uh, i'm looking at your wikipedia page and being thoroughly impressed with how well St. John's, I mean, I went to Northern Illinois, so another, you know, cold weather uh, division one school and, you know, sustained success in the, in the, you know, in the colder weather, you know, division one climate is, is not easy. So I'm really impressed. My question is, you know, how was your first spring training? I think I remember my first spring training as a professional base, as a player, but as you're, you know, as transitioning from, from everything you knew for from years of college coaching, how was that uh, experience down with the uh, with the with the pro team? I, 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 it was a great experience, but um, I think we got into the fourth day of camp and they shut it down. Um, I was down. I've been that, I was down there for approximately a month. Uh, came in for the mini camp, which is uh, you know they have they bring in a lot of their uh, you know quality players. Uh, but we only really got to four days of a full camp. And it, it, it's obviously different. You're dealing with, in regards to college, you're dealing with a roster of 35. And now you're dealing with, you know, four full season teams. And, you know, there will be, there certainly would be some players that will be extended players. Um, and the organization that takes place um, and the amount of people that are involved in the entire process, it's, it's, it's quite different. It's quite unique. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I wish I was down there further to, to, to learn it, but you know, um, I, I like what I saw. I thought it was great. I thought it was great. It's, it's, it's what it's all about. Well, so one of our, our mutual acquaintances, um, he was telling me that a, as he was prepping me for this podcast for both of you guys, of course, I've already met Ty, but, um, and Ed, you and I met at the ABCA as well this year. Uh, he said, you know, Ed's big on routine. He's really sharp and he's very well prepared for anything he does. And I read this book. Have you read uh, General Jim Mattis's book? No, I have not yet. No. I'll... He's going to add it to his list now. I, uh, huh? I have a, a list. I have a journal of books that I read. So, But, uh, he, I mean, he's a super well-read guy. And, and so one of the things he impresses in his book is is reading and how important it was to him. And he said – when he was transitioning from um, general to, I think it was to when he was like the the chief of the joint, um, the joint command. I'm, 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 I'm botching that, I know. But he basically said, you know, this was a new job for me and a lot of different demands and a lot of more administrative tasks and things that were unfamiliar to me. So he said, so what I did was I outlined a list of like 23 books that I knew if I read would uh, prepare me well to like hit the ground running. And I was just like, you're not a normal human. Like that's awesome. Um, but it's, it struck me as a parallel as I was running this morning, um, that you seem in a similar way from everything I've heard. So what did you do to prepare for your first pro season after 24 years of St. John's, um, to just kind of hit the ground running? You know, I, I talked to some of the coordinators. I've talked to people that are currently in, uh, baseball that I knew that uh, that were in the college setting that are now in the pro setting. So I tried to I, I tried to, to do my research as best I could uh, with people that I knew now in the profession to give me some sort of idea of what's going on. Uh, I I don't think there's any real book you have to read 
uh, in regards to baseball. Um, but uh, I just think that I relied on the experiences of others that have, that have, that have made the transition. Uh, and uh, that's, that's how I went about it. Uh, I've also uh, used uh, the current you know, people in place uh, to discuss um, how I could be of help and what I should be looking for. And they've, they've allowed me to grow a little bit, to, uh, to evaluate, to look around, so um, to get my feet wet, so to speak. Um, so I, I, I'm just disappointed it was cut short because I would have probably been in the thick, thick of things right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ty, we got to shift gears. How has your coronavirus been? Your coronavirus standoff, hold out. Um, and I have a question for everyone, which we asked our other guests, which is what creature comfort have either of you bought yourself um, to help you get through this? Is it like a new coffee machine? Like a new, I mean, is there anything that you've sort of said, I need this to help me get through, or this is something that I need on my daily basis to help cut the monotony? I'd say we, we both like separately ordered um, probably about eight books. Yeah. And we're, we're big uh, readers. I mean, I haven't been able to read this consistently in a long time. I think I've read four books through this process, but what's on the list? Rattle some off. I've, uh, I've I'm almost done. I pretty much finished swing Kings. Um, then I have stillness by Ryan holiday. Um, obstacles away by Ryan holiday, which he got, he already read and, um, super forecasting. So I, I just got those a couple of days ago, and then I've, I've read, like, Essentialism, uh, Make Your Bed, Proximity Principle, Swing King. So, I mean, I, we've done a decent job with that, with that, with that thing. He's, you've crushed more than I have. He's, he can read. He's more like Bill Gates, and I'm slower, slower paced reader. Yeah, I read, I read a, a – I heard something that the average person reads 1.7 books a year and the average CEO reads 30 books a year. So where I get that fun fact from take it for what it's worth. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Jim Mattis reads like 440 books a year. He's, yeah. You know, no, there's some animal. guys crushing. <laughs> That's not normal. normal. No, yeah. it's not normal. I, yeah. I audio book myself, which I really enjoy. And people have this weird, I don't know. Some people kind of scoff at audiobooks sometimes. They're like, "Oh, that's not real reading. It doesn't. It doesn't massage your brain in the same way." I'm like, "Well, a you can read in all the little nooks and crannies of your day. Like everyone knows this. Like in your car, like in the bathroom. Like you can listen to an audiobook. Any, you know, all that garbage time in your life." Um, but the question is, and I don't know. Do you guys feel like if you listen to audiobooks, you don't absorb as much material? I think that's the argument against it. But I don't know if that's yeah, really I, true. Uh, that's tough because I find myself drifting off. Uh, you know, typically with my ride when I was at St. John's from St. John's to, uh, my house or, uh, my house to St. John's would take me about on average, about an hour and a half, tried the audio book thing. And I just, my mind just seemed to drift the same thing with, um, you know, and I don't have one now, but, but, you know, uh, you know, an iPad or a Kindle. It just doesn't feel the same as holding a book in your hands. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'm not used to it. Um, I also, and Ty and I both, we either highlight or we write in the, you know, the columns. So um, uh, I, I, I guess creature of habit more than anything else that uh, I got to have that in my hands, at least for me. Yeah, that's fair. Ty, are you a, a digital or paper book reader? 
Uh, I'm, I'd prefer a paper book. Um, I would read, like, I would an uh, audiobook, especially when you drive. But I'm more of a podcaster listen to just because I like the conversation and I think the, the audiobook can get monotonous at times. However, there are some good audiobooks now that will read, then podcast, read, then podcast. You like, like that? I hate that. I hate that with a burning I like passion. That. I hate that so much. This is the worst I, thing I, I've ever heard. Yeah, I, I like it though because like it breaks it up and they can expand on uh, – intricate details that you have that you have a question about or like usually they do and they like can can speak on it and you can hear some emotion and that's why i think that the uh that type of audiobook resonates with me more than just a typical audiobook mm-hmm. i mean i like it's kind of like that like driving long like sometimes a scout could be like hard like to keep your focus and stuff when something's like doesn't really spice you up it's hard are you talking about David Goggins' book? Yeah, that's good. I think more people should do that. See, this is great because we need to get rolling, get a good argument because I couldn't finish it because of that. I got like a third of the way through. I'm like, I'm, I hate this. I hate this so much. I can't. I can't. Really? I can't. And part of it was because like David Goggins should have done the whole thing in my opinion. He, his voice and his experience and the way he talks and the way he is, he's very distinctive, right? He's unfiltered, right? And the guy who was narrating his audiobook was like this nerdy white dude. I'm like, you can't, you can't like be David Goggins. Like in a lot of these audiobooks, I feel like typecasting your narrator is important. And you know, if it's just, you're just like a you know, generic, like a mannequin white guy like me, like sure, you get anyone to like read my audiobook. Like I'm not, I don't have any like profound way of speaking. I'm just pretty like plain and whatever. But David Goggins he uses a lot of curse words in the book, like a lot of them. He's like pretty aggressive in the way he talks in the book. Right. And then to do that with like someone like me where I'm like, Hey, you mofo, like you shouldn't like, it was just like, it felt very forced by the narrator where I'm like, if David Goggins had done the whole thing, I would have listened to it. I also am not super on board with him, but I just felt like the back and forth where the narrator made it feel very inauthentic. And David oh, yeah. Goggins, if nothing else, David Goggins is a very authentic, like he doesn't hold stuff back. He's not sugarcoating it. He's like, this is my life. It was real. Like he's very unfiltered. And then to like filter himself through his narrator, I felt like, like, I don't know. I just can't do this. Like, just okay, it's, so it sounds like you're, you want me to narrate that book, Dan. <laughs> totally unfiltered. Uh, swear. Let the, let the expletives fly. <laughs> well, you know, it's like you couldn't like – there's just an authenticity about Goggins, like I said, and it's just like getting his rabbi to read it. I don't, I don't know. It was just strange. Um, but I don't know what well, you, you enjoy the breaking up and I get that part of it where you break it up and it's like, you get the new voice and it's kind of like snaps you back into it. Is that kind of your thing? Yeah. I mean, they're off the cuff, so they're not like, there's no, they're not reading. That's true. You're thing. right. They like banter back and forth, like in little breaks. Yeah. And then you could ask questions about some, like they ask questions about different parts of the book, of the chapter, which is, it, to me, I got more out of the audio book that way. Whereas if they just went straight through it, regardless of who was um, reading it, like, I don't think I would have gotten the same. Gotcha. That's just that's, me. That's interesting. Dave or Bobby, have you read that book? I have not read that book. You guys are reading. Ed, Ed, uh, Ed have you? Ed, no, have I have you? not. No. Nope. Are you are you a fan of David Goggins? Do you do you subscribe to his messages? Do you, do uh, no, no. But I'll, I'll I'll take a look at him today. 
<laughs> Take a look. Ty's loud. Believe me, believe me, I pl- we have plenty of time. So he uses lots of swear words, Ed. So you got to be careful. <laughs> Ty, are you, are you on board with him? Yeah, I mean, to to an extent, I'm not like. Tell, give me, lay it down. I want to hear it. I want to hear your opinion because I'm opinionated when it comes to to him. Like there, there is. At times, it's not. I understand what he's doing. At the basis of it, he's trying to get people to be okay with being out of their comfort zone, and you know all that, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there is an element of our society needing that, needing to be able to stretch their mind, and re- re- needing to like. I think he calls it like like getting tougher, basically toughen everybody up mentally. Um, however, the extremes that he went to are pretty much insane. Um, but I think he's just trying to show. It. But like my 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 concern was like when you read the book and listen to the book, this isn't speaking like I, you have to be able to scale it back in your head as you go through it because this isn't speaking to ninety nine point nine percent of our population. So like I don't know like how it really because it's like. I don't know. It's like trying to like play in the big leagues after, you know, two games in little league, the, what he, with, with what his experience are. So, I mean, yeah, I agree with that for sure. It's in and doses. I, I like it, but I, I couldn't subscribe to him, you know, totally. So, well, yeah. Put it that way. And, and, and my big thing, and, and Ed, I'm curious your take on this. So if, if you're out there listening and you don't know about David Goggins, really interesting guy, he's worth listening to for sure. He's a former Navy SEAL um, and he basically talks about how he just com- he didn't like who he was when he was younger and like into his, I guess, in his 20s, was out of shape and then was like looking himself in the eyes like, look, you big pansy, like we're going to fix this. And now he basically just like runs 100 miles all the time to like grab the refrigerator out of his house, put it on his back and go hike a mountain and like do that's not a real thing. But he just like does the most whatever a crazy amount of exercise would be. He'll do that times like five and then like call you a, a pansy if you don't want to do that. And he's like. And in SEAL training, and this was my this was my big thing, is like in SEAL training, like that he got through it, I guess, and he started like getting on the other SEALs where he was like, hey, like, let's go for a 60-mile run. They're like, nah, <laughs> like we're good. And he's like, oh, you're soft now? And it's like, that's my thing. At some point, you don't have to keep proving to yourself that you're a man. Like you don't have to keep doing things that trash your body to prove like at some point and Again, like I think all of us had like pretty long experiences in baseball where you get to a point where like, I don't have to be the best at exercising. I don't have to be the best at this. I don't have to be the best. I know who I am. I've challenged myself to prove who I am. And I don't have to go and prove it every single day because I'm secure in what I know and what I've done. You know what I mean? Like at some point, you don't have to prove yourself every day. Like you prove yourself and you know who you are. Um, I don't know. Ed, where do you fall on that? You know, you use the word prove. Um... Uh, you know, those elite forces, men and women, are just, uh, they're special people. They are. Uh, they're, they're, uh, <laughs> they're just so elite mentally, it's just, it's, it's uncanny, unbelievable. My, my, my focus is, as a person, and I don't, I don't care how old or young you are, it just, just try to get better every day at, at something. Whatever it may be, I'm not saying, is, is it physically, is it mentally, is it reading a book, is it? Just do something uh, that you feel after that day, hey, 
whatever how trivial it may be, uh, I'm, you know, the book I make, making making it making your bed. You do something that you feel that you at least you accomplish something each day. And if you think think about that, every day in your life, if you can accomplish one thing, just think how fulfilled your life will be. Yeah. Have you read the book uh, Atomic Habits? Either of you? Yes, read that book. Yep. Yeah, it's a good yep. little book. Yeah. Yeah. And he just talks about yeah. aggregating, like collecting the little things that add up, and he has a lot of good strategies. Yeah, for, uh, for helping yeah. with that, and, and, and I, I think what you're seeing in this, in this day and age, and when you go into a Barnes and Noble or any bookstore, you know, self-help books, um, improve, and any type of mental improvement type of things, yoga, uh, you know, Zen, meditation, meditation, they've all become popular. You know, you know, it just seems like different times. Um, in our lives, in our, in our society, that things really, really take off. Uh, and I think right now, you know, just, a, you know, meditation and Zen, for example, has become a popular item, yoga included. Um, well, speak on that. How has that changed? I mean, you've been around a long time, so you've seen a lot of baseball fads come and go. You've seen a lot of things that were unacceptable become acceptable. What yeah. is the, what, what has the journey been in, in mental training? Because I know 20 years ago, if you wanted some sort of mental training you might be just level, labeled a weak you know weak-minded yeah. head case so how does that evolve during your career well i you know it's it's you know it's it, it's it's become very big it's it's you know just as technology has started really really taken off the mental game is is really comes to the forefront too and um, you know you have to in our game especially uh you know you got to be able to deal with adversity and failure um, the big word and the buzzword, and you mentioned it earlier, you know, doing some homework on me is routines. And I'm a big believer in routines, um, whether it's a physical routine, whether it's a mental routine. Um, you, you mix in the Eastern religions and, and, and with yoga and with breathing. And I think you're seeing that filtered into our um, ment mental game as well. Um, yeah. This game is mental. It's not. It's not a physical game. You know. It's we 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 don't we do, we practice the physical, but we don't practice the mental. Yeah. So Ty, you were growing up in the dugout. You're around all these these big leaguers like Joe Panic, and I know you're close with him. Um, what did you learn about the mental game from watching some of those guys? Because like, I think the mental game is like for me. Like I, there was a period in my life, and I'm actually starting to again. I meditate every day for a couple of years, and it made a huge difference. But I also think most young players won't do that. Like I know for a fact that they won't. They're not going to sit down and close their eyes mm -hmm. for 20 minutes. So I think a lot of the mental stuff comes from parents, right? It's how you're raised. It's the, the situations you're in, but also the people you're around. Um, how did you, what did you feel like you learned from growing up in a dugout? Well, I'd say the, the best guys like a Joe Panic, they were in control of their emotions the most. I mean, that's why he can make, you just, Make, he can make big plays and um, in the World Series like he did. Like, so I think to be in control of your emotion and, like, you walk away from the field and it's 0 for 3. And even as a scout, this applies to me. Um, like, you can't tell if it's 0 for 3 or 3 for 3 with three doubles. So I think, like, the attitude of, hey, same guy every day, 
went a long way to the players that, that were good in in uh, growing up with. However, I think there is some guys that that it works different for that they have a short fuse and they need to let it go. They need they can't just bottle it in. You know, sometimes it's healthy to get it out too. However, if you play a hundred, if you're trying to play 162 like it's everybody's dream, that eventually is going to take a toll on you. So you got to have a easier fuse and you can't be slamming um slamming trash cans all the time which i did once in college because of him but um what do you mean because of him I, yeah the other <laughs> out thing with is it I, out I with think, it no yeah <laughs> i think the other thing is there's a stigma of mental um to it like if you say um me and zach talk about this all the time like the stigma with the mental game is like oh it's per- the men- the word mental is perceived negative to players. Like, oh, yeah, for I, sure. you know, they think for they're sure. mental. So one thing I like is like if I was teaching kids, to do, I would call it presence practice, right? Just to be present because that's what you're really trying to do. Just become present. The, the, get rid of the anxiety. How do you get rid of the anxiety? Being in the present, not worrying about the future or the past. So I would like – it. I think it takes time. And I think like for young kids that don't like it, I think they have to get away from this. There's so much stimulus that they have iPads, YouTube, um, Instagram, podcasts, Twitter, and, Zoom meetings. <laughs> yeah, and there's, there's an infinite, like there's an infinite amount and your mind, like really it's, it's, there's a finite amount of like your, the wellness of it. So you have to be able to, to separate that. So I think more for that is like, if I'm teaching young kids, I'd call it presence practice. I wouldn't call it like, hey, let's work on the mental game. Let's let's get present. Whether that's meditation. And what does that look like? Like specifically actionable. If a coach is right, there's a there's a coach somewhere, and he's like, all right, presence practice. What does that look like? At first, I'd say it's um, getting like the the devices to me have to. Like, nowadays, I go to games and I see kids with their cell phone and on the field or in the dugout. I would say the one thing I'd say, and it, it might sound harsh, is leave the leave the phones or the um, or the iPads like in in the locker room. That'd be a rule. That'd be like because this is your time to get away from everything else. Like this is your time to be where your feet are and not worry about hey, what my girlfriend's texting me, whatever. Um, and then I would say like. But how are you going to film TikToks on the field in the dugout if you don't have your phone? Exactly. Like, that, you know, it's, it's <laughs> Ed, what's your, Ed, what's your TikTok account? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't have that. So well, I think, well, Ty, how do you feel about that as a scout? Is it, do you, do you take that into account when you're watching a, if you're going to a college game, you see a guy pull his phone out of his, uh, do you see that in college? Bag? I, I have, and I have, but I, I'm like, I actually am like somewhat mindful to what it is about. Like if, if it's a, if it's a pitcher and he uses it for whatever his music to get going, that's fine. Yeah. Like if you see like the kid shagging BP and he's looking at his phone during it, or he's in the dugout right 15 minutes before the game, get your mind right, man. That's not, that's, there's no way that's getting your mind right. So I think like, and the things you mentioned, like what I would do, I would like breathing, like, cause I don't think they know the power of like being in control of your breath yet. And I think you could teach that. I, I really do. Like, I'm a, I'm a huge I agree. Yeah. fan. Yeah. And I think, like, if you really practice it and really get buy-in, it's hard to get buy-in, but really do, it's hard. Like, so in college, he had us do this almost every, every like, a lot 
every winter, like we, we practice it, he'd run the meditation. And I would say I was like 50% in, I gave a hundred percent of that 50. Like I had, but like I, I never really got fully there. Um, recently through yoga, through, um, Alan and through like, just like playing with it. I, I was like, Whoa, I can get really present and just by meditation. And it, I believe it works. Um, and this is something that if I wish I had in college, because in college I, I could have been, I was a little, I worried about the wrong things as a player. So if I had that tool in college, I think I would have been a better baseball player. Just being, just able to be, be present and not worry about the drama. So Ty, you know, that's something I wanted to talk to you about. Cause I'm a, I'm the son of a coach. My dad, little league, you know, youth baseball, travel baseball and the high school varsity coach. So probably had him a lot longer than probably, you know, most other players. And then you get your dad in the college ranks, you know, how much of that you said your reluctance to maybe buy into the meditation, would it have been different if it wasn't coming from someone who you also lived with and you were all, you know, as a fa your father figure, um, I always, you know, struggle, you know, I would find myself butting heads with my own father for no other reason than we were, I was around him a lot more. Um, I don't think the um, meditation would have been different at that point. Cause like Dan said, it's hard to really get the buy-in at that point to understand, understand the magnitude of it. However, there are things that, you know, that come up that I thought I, I, there might've been a little bit of more buy-in if I'm being completely transparent, like, like, I, I don't, I can't necessarily think of it, but like there are times, yeah, like, you, you know, this, this guy's one of the most legendary college coaches. And I, I do, I was holding back to complete buy-in because, you know, I, you know, at times you, you don't, you're not always, um, what's, how should I say it? You, you think you have it figured out. Like, you know, what yeah, do you know sure. that I don't at times? Cause there's some hard headedness and that's, you know, to be able to, to compartmentalize that, um, is a talent in itself when it come, when it had come to uh, playing for your father, I'd say. Yeah, that, that's if I can chime in a little bit on that. At least our relationship was, um, you know, it, it was it was almost like you know a, a two headed monster. I'll, I'll use that expression. Okay. And and the, the thing is, uh, it would the it was am I your father, your dad, or or am I your coach? And we we, all, we we constantly talked about this about you know because we worked quite a bit on his defense and his hitting, and we had we've had some moments. I'm sure you had some moments with your dad working on some things, but I you know you have to you have to draw you know you have to draw the relationship between hey, now I'm not your dad, I'm your coach. This is what we have to do, and this is what we think we have to do. And of course, there's dialogue and discussion, but in the same token, once we left the ballpark, I'm your dad. So we, we get off the baseball end of it and we, you know, we, we go back to the family relationship. And I, I think that's the, that's the big thing that I, what, we, what Ty and I try to do is we have, we try to differentiate between, you know, I'm his dad, he's my son and I'm his coach. He's my player. Um, so, and when we're on the field with the team, he understood that. He understood that. And we, when we work individually, we, we always talked about that because there were some frustrating moments. And obviously when we're away from the field, it's father and son. That's been a relationship. 
Well, how did you draw that line? So say, you know, you're driving home, one of you wants to talk about the game. I mean, if Ty starts talking about it, do you, do you shut it down or? You know, yeah, we, but we, we, and we kept it in that context though. Oh, you want, want to talk baseball as a coach player here? Okay. We'll talk about it. Or what do you want to talk about as a, as a dad? We've had some, you know, it, it's, it's not easy coaching your son. Uh, and, and when I say not easy, it's, it was not certainly not easy for him at times and not easy for me. Uh, because obviously everybody's always watching mm-hmm. and I quite frankly probably was much harder on him than I was on a lot of other players even regards to playing time you know you know he really had to earn where other guys got better opportunities um, and and but the discussion has to be clarified by hey coach coach player or we talking dad you know dad's son and I, I think what when you do it that way there's there's clarity and understanding along the way yeah i think that's fair and i think you know because bobby and i both i formerly ran a baseball academy bobby still owns his i sold mine in august uh, moved back east um but you see that with parents and you can definitely tell when the coach doesn't turn off you know whether they're just at the game and of course i was coach of my own team but you know there's some parents where i know like the whole car ride home it's just you know, you should have made that play. Like we got to get in the cage tomorrow. Like we, it's just like, it never turns off. There's never this like safe place. Um, which, you know, everyone has a different experience. There's also father son relationships like that, where that's, they just want to talk baseball the whole way home and they're both bought in. It's, it's, it's obviously personal. Um, but I think more times than not, like you said, I think what you said is, is really astute that there needs to be that separation where he can access you as his dad and just have the, the unconditional love and support and not like my who I am as your son is wrapped up into how many hits I got that day. Yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, that's that's it's tough. And Ty, I, I don't want to say I sympathize with you, but I, I've you know I'm I've I've been in the, in those in those situations where it's you don't know like it's a, it ends up just being uh, you know a mesh together of who am I talking to right now? And I always try and tell this is really good stuff, Ed for. You know, I have a lot of youth parents that also coach their kids and I try and I try and give them advice, you know, let the other assistant coaches coach your son and you coach their kid and try and keep somewhat of a separation because as a as the player and as the kid, it feels like it's unfair a lot of the time. Like I I can remember situations in high school where I'd be the only kid on the team that got a hit in the game and I'd be the only one getting reamed out in the post game. And Looking back on it, it's well. If my if as my dad, to everybody else's perception, if he doesn't criticize me, it's look like he, it's going to look like he plays favorites. Mm-hmm. So I, I sympathize with that. You know, looking back on it, it's like that's a difficult situation to be in. So I try and tell some of the dads that we have. You know, look, it's going to be perceived like you're playing favorites, even if you're twice as hard on your own son. So yeah, try and you know take yourself out of that situation uh, as much as possible and and let somebody else coach your son and, and you coach theirs. But it's a really difficult situation when you're, when you're, you know, on the field and it's the heat of, you know, uh, essentially battle, even though it's a, maybe a 10 U baseball game, you just, you want to treat everyone the same and just comes off sometimes as you, as you can't. Yeah. Let me make two points on that. Uh, number one, let's be honest, as a parent, you always want your child to do well, to excel. Um, because basically when you see your child participate 
Um, to me, that's tough because, you know, I'd rather strike out than my son strike out, if you know right. what I mean. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're watching him up there, whether he's failing. And, and, and parents have a difficult time dealing with that. Um, and that's where the problem lies, the separation, uh, you know, wanting them to do so well. And then if they don't, they, they critique. And I, I was one of those parents at times, especially when my daughter's in field hockey, which I didn't know a darn thing about field hockey. I thought I did as a coach, but I did uh, because I wanted them to do so well and to excel. And I expected them to do certain things. Maybe that's a little bit of the coaching background. The second part of my point is I look at a child in three ways of a, of, of a child of a coach that coaches their child. The first one is the one that's clearly head and shoulders, a great player, the best on the team, no bones, no, no doubt about it, where you don't have to yeah. worry about that. Yeah. You know, he's everybody, you know, everybody that goes there, that's the best player, but no, no. Then there's the one that's not even close to being any good. But most of us fall in the, in the middle territory. We're pretty darn yeah. good. Okay, we're right in that, that average bunch or with, right along with everybody else. And that's the difficult parenting and coaching, coaching that particular child because that's the one you watch. That's the one that's identified as, oh, gee, he's playing his son more than this guy. And whereas Johnny, who's a stud, everybody, he's got to play all the time. Or Billy, who can't, you know, tie his shoes, they're easy. He just put him in the game, get a couple of bats, okay. But that middle-tier person, that's the tough child to coach. Yeah, and it's tough to find playing time that's, that's equal. Like, for me, I coached uh, – we had, like, a strong um, – academy showcase travel set of teams and for me i didn't care if we won a game at all obviously we want to win like of course but at the same time guys are going to get their bats guys are going to get their innings guys are going to get left out there a little longer sometimes than maybe they should because i want them to compete and fight through some of those situations i'm going to put some of our lesser guys into tight spots once in a while so they can have that experience they can eventually thrive in it and when you start to talk about the difference between pitchers five, six, and seven on your roster as a 15U team, there's there's very little difference in what they can do, right? There, there's It's like I could start him or I could start him. There's not a whole lot of difference. He does this thing well. He does this thing well. He doesn't do that well. He doesn't do that well. And like you said, in the guys in the bell curve, it can be really tough to say, uh, why, you know, why does he deserve to start over him? Uh, it's like not always clear. And that's where I think parents can really start to like – Sometimes it's little mental things. Sometimes it's, hey, he had a really good practice. Sometimes it's a lot of sight unseen things where if we're talking about, you know, when parents get upset with coaches about playing time inequity or whatever, um, there's a lot of unseen decisions that as a college coach, you don't, you're, no, no parents calling you, hopefully. I know there are some now, but hopefully no one's calling you and asking you, why did my son get pulled in the seventh inning? Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe the answer is, because, you know, at our level, because I wanted to have him potentially on the bench and ready in case I needed to have him pitch an inning if we got into, you know, trouble down the road with our current guy. So I pulled him, and you didn't know this, you know, parent, you didn't know I pulled him because I wanted to have him ready if we got to a scenario that didn't end up happening. Mm. And, you know, you know this as a, as a youth coach, you can't always have every conversation with every parent. You can't be completely transparent about everything, even if you try to be a good communicator. And so then they're like, uh, he just yanks my son and puts that kid in. Well, it's like, even if it was a lesser player, we put him in there because there was a, there was a thing happening. 
and you weren't mm-hmm. privy to it, but there was a thing happening to hopefully help our team be ready to get out of one of those jams. And that can be really tough. Do you, and this is a question for both of you, because Ty, I know you see it on, you know, your scouting side and Ed, um, I mean, you guys were obviously out there recruiting and stuff for years as well, but um, the parent dynamic, do you, do you see it's changed? Are there things that you're looking for when you're peering into the scouts, watching an amateur player um, that, cro- that you get crossed off your list? Are you crossing guys off the list because of their parents? Ty, does that happen for in the pro game? Like, are you not going to uh, draft a kid because he's got a psycho mom? <laughs> I mean, it's you have to be mindful of it because a lot of times the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But you can't penalize the kid for the parent because the parent, a lot of times, it comes out of love. You, you got to understand that it comes out of the willingness for their, the, for their kid to succeed, like he said. Um, but I think part of scouting is knowing the, knowing the parents, knowing where, you know, their upbringing – and you know you really want to get an old school scouting. You know know what the, how the how the parents' bodies are, and like that's a different topic. But there is an element of it because um, usually, not all the times, but there are some commonalities when you have parents that are a little overbearing, um, and you just have to market and just be uh, be known for it. So I mean, I can't say I would ever cross the kid off for that by no means but I, I, I do make it known just to kind of paint the picture to everybody else just another factor for a pro scout just potentially just like in his file just yeah like. yeah just make note of it I mean or it's the same <clears throat> thing like I, I think about this all the time it's like why do you think bloodlines are so important especially in baseball think yeah. about like the all Toronto the, Blue Jays the, the or Boons all these, and yeah the Boons you know Bichette Guerrero been there, done that. You know, there, there's, there's a place for the IQ, how to handle yourself. They've seen it. They're not phased by going into a pro locker room. There's an element of that to go into that and, and adjust and adapt quicker than everybody else. So I think it, that on the, on the opposite side of that, there's that too with the bloodlines. That's what, I think that's very important too to go to your point. So, yeah, as good as it could be um, a, you know, a negative is it could be a it turned around and it's positive. Like I, last year I had uh, Jack Leiter. If you sat down and watched talk pitching with Jack Leiter, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had to get out my pen and take notes because that kid was, <laughs> you know, six years, I mean, maybe eight years younger than me or whatever. And he was spitting knowledge like I, I couldn't believe, but his car rides home have been different, you know? Yeah. So there's, there's two ends of the spectrum. I'd like to think I, I was the same way, you know, like, going home from the games is a little different from what I had learned when I was 10 years old than, than most kids. But I mean, I don't know. How do you feel about that? I mean, you know, recruitment of, uh, I use the word difficult parent. Um, you know, uh, again, I, I think there are warning signs and then you have to, certainly to me, you know, when I was doing it at St. John's, uh, you know, where were the red flags and was that player worth it <laughs> yeah. to get involved with something like that? You really have, you really have to weigh it. Uh, what I would look for is the interaction between the parent and the child. Um, you know, I, w- I wanted to see that dynamic. Um, 
if 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 situationally you had a a parent that was very boisterous or you know uh, uh, drew attention to himself, I wanted to see how the kid reacted to him while he was on the field. Um, when I had a chance to recruit or talk to them, I want to see who was the dominant figure. Was it the child doing the talking? The father talked for the child, or the mother. Who 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 ran the shop, so to speak? Yeah. So I think you really, uh, you know, you use the word homework. You know, you have to look at that dynamic and make a determination uh, wh- whether the kid is coachable, whether you can, whether you personally or your staff can personally handle the situation, whether you wanted to recruit the kid or not. Sometimes, sometimes uh, you have to, you have to, you know, whether he's good or not, you may have to pull the plug. You feeling that that dynamic may not work in your organization. Don't know. It, it's a, it's a case by case basis. Yeah. I like that you use the word child because I think too often we think of these 16, 17 year old kids, especially when they're D1 athletes as being like very in control and they're physical. Like, I mean, you looked at LeBron James when he was a high school player, you're like, who's that old guy? Like, like, yeah. you know, he's looking like he's 28 years old. Um, but the reality is that they are still children. I mean, I look back at myself when I was 18 and if you, I have my college ID somewhere. I literally look like the spitting image of Justin Bieber, just like 19 years old, but just uh, clean shaven and wide eyed and scared, but they are, they're children and they're going to get on college campus and be bewildered by all this stuff they have to do. They're in the public eye if they're an athlete because they're walking around with their, you know, St. John's or UMBC or NIU sweats on all day. People know who they are. Professors are harder on them. They're goofing off. Like it's, it's suddenly this big thing and uh, they're on their own for the first time. Like they are still children until you're like, I'd say probably 25. Um, you know, you're out there doing your thing in the real world, but um, it's, it's one of those things where I think Bobby and I especially try to warn parents like, you're getting your kid crossed off lists right now. You don't realize it, but like what you're doing in the bleachers, like scouts are already crossing off your list and it's hard to have that conversation. And a lot of them just don't understand that either their excitement or they're just over exuberance or they're, I don't know. They're like, they're being watched by every college coach that comes to the game. Like, Oh, that's that kid's dad. And I don't think I want that experience yeah. maybe. And that's tough. And that's, we just try to warn parents. Like if you do, if you, you put so much money and, and time and effort again, like you said, trying to help your kid excel and you could be unwittingly undoing it by your conduct in the bleachers, especially getting it, getting into it with um, umpires and stuff like that. It's like, yikes. It's, um, it's, it's chasing uh, the division one scholarship, if you will, chasing the dream and wanting your child to, you know, be, be that whomever. The, whatever their perception uh, is, instead of for their for their child to enjoy it and just become the best they can be at it and support that, whatever wherever that may be, it's we want so much for our child. I understand it. I I, I, I get it. Um, and you and certain people have more resources than others, and certainly children have better talent than others. And there's certainly there's young men and women that have. Uh, an innate ability to work and make themselves great players. I don't, you know, it all, it all, it all works a different way, but the bottom line is, you know, when it's all said and done, um, just enjoy it. And because the time's going to go move, move fast and uh, everybody can't be Mike Trout. 
So unfortunately, <laughs> and, and we, but but that's what they're chasing. They're chasing that that fame, whatever that 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 particular goal is in their mind. A Division One scholarship, being drafted professionally, make a million dollars. Yeah, I just uh, just want to cut in real quick, Dan. Dan and I have a mutual friend texting me, and I just want to point out that Dan referred to himself as a Justin Bieber lookalike. <laughs> uh, so I just with their. Third, we could we could do a whole another show on that, but um, I want to switch gears with you guys a little bit. Uh, we have someone on Twitter, uh, Glenn. Thank you. Asked a question. Um, I'll start with I'll start with Ty. Uh, he wants to know how are you dealing with uh, you know the whole situation with coronavirus and not being able to get out uh, in regards to the upcoming draft and guys that um, you know that are on your list and and in your area. Um. You got me. I got. I got you. I don't know where Dan. Dan apparently left. Oh uh, yeah. So for me, um, you guys hear me? Yeah, I got you. Yeah. Okay. So Te- technical difficulties. I think uh, to your question, I, I've been. Um, first of all, I feel for the kids because all of us, you know, love the game and stuff. It it would suck to lose your senior year or any college year like that or senior in high school so that's the first thing but as far as what I'm doing I mean I'm trying to keep in contact with the kids and you know you know make sure their spirits are up um and you know it kind of puts everything in perspective not that I've ever taken the game for granted because I think I, I don't think I ever have but you know how much you you realize how important the game is and just being out there being on the field is and you know, and to an element's taken away from, you know, a lot of us right now. So I think being able to reflect on, you know, that end of it has been um, has been great because I think there's a lot of kids out there that will um, appreciate just being being present on the field at all times. Like how I use the word present, but um, and as far as what we're doing as the organization, we're kind of just we have video collected. We have great video guys that previously collected video throughout the seasons. We're looking at different video on, you know, guys we're may, may or may not be considering and, you know, having to put our inputs in there and, you know, do making the most of each day. I think um, what I've been doing is my dad, he's, he like likes to learn and stuff. So I've been trying to like go on these random zoom calls and learn a little about, about different parts of the game. So that's kind of what I've been doing. It's funny you say learn. Um, I have a really good friend who's a pitching coach, uh, low a pitching coach with the Rays, and they're they're all being mandated to to take Spanish classes over this over this. Uh, That's break. a good thing I, to do. Yeah. Ed, are the are the Mets making no, no, you? No, no, uh, no, no. But I have um, I, I try to spend an hour a day on Spanish, Duolingo. I'm on that, and uh, Spanish with Paul. Uh, so I utilize the web to try to, you know, it's that Spanish, uh, grammatically is correct, but you know, the Spanish, when you talk to the players is a little, little more of a slang Spanish. You have to place yourself in a, in, in conversation, but the, it's, you know, to me, uh, te- uh, teaching is communicating and you do have a lot of, uh, players that are, that are Latin players and, um, you better, you better be able to communicate with them and, and like anything else, so they have a better comfort level if you entertain their language. 
So as, as a manager for the, for the, for the Brooklyn Cyclones, what are some of the challenges that you foresee making the switch from college to, to pro ball? Uh, you know, ooh, that's, that's, that's a good question. Um, obviously, uh, what I like, uh, challenges, I don't have to put up with the, the recruitment. I, 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 no. Yeah. Um, I, I know the volume of players you'll be dealing with the more than what I would particularly deal with it at, at, at my, my roster was 35 and that was it. Um, there's the, you know, guys go up and down. Uh, you get some guys come up from uh, the GCL. So the movement will be new to me. Yeah. Um, uh, from a development perspective, uh, uh, you know, you're going to play the players uh, and give them a fair amount of chances, and you're not going to you're not going to play one lineup all the time. But you know, you're going to go out there to play to win and, and play the game the right way. Uh, I, I liked the, the fact that uh, there is more will be more development, meaning you'll do a lot more early work in regards to your developing of the players. Games are important, but the early work is just as important. Uh, then you also factor in, which is uh, which you do have a nice staff of uh, you know four staff members, including the manager, as well as your performance coach. We have a little bit of a mental person. We have an intern. We have a trainer. So you have a, a group of guys to work with um, to to kind of delegate the activity and work. And and that's the bottom line is what you're doing is you're developing the player, but you're also developing the team, and that takes a little bit of time. So. Uh, there's some challenges. There's some challenges, but uh, I like those challenges. And I have an, another question along kind of the same lines, and, and this is something I'm opinionated about, so I'm, I'm curious to hear uh, where you fall. But I am a firm believer that amateur players need to call their own game as pitchers. I don't care what, what level in college. Like I realize there's differences in different yeah. places. Like SEC baseball is different animal than high school baseball. It's different animal than, um, you know, mid-major D1 baseball even. But – um, where do you fall on coaches calling pitches? Do you feel like it's really as beneficial as what, as it, I mean, cause it's, it's, it's super widespread. It's the norm. It's not it's the, the norm, norm to let kids call their, call their own pitches. Why do you feel like that? Hey, did you see that trend? Like, in, cause it had to start somewhere back on the sandlot with, you know, Benny, the jet Rodriguez, mm -hmm. like he was calling yeah. his own game. And at some point no one calls their own game. So can you speak a little bit about pitch calling? Yeah, you know, from a collegiate level, I uh, we 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 did it all the time. You know, when I was in it, um, but the key to, the key to it is we did it because and and like anything else, um, we did our homework on the opposing team, and um, we did the homework. Not that we don't pro provide an advanced scouting report for our guys, but we 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 had a good idea how we wanted to attack the hitters. With the same token. Uh, we knew we felt that we knew our play uh, pitch. I don't know. I think we lost him for a sec, but <clears throat> I'll jump on my soapbox here but, real fast. Okay, there you guys. Yeah, but 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 what what I will tell you this: when we did call a pitch, okay, the pitcher had every right to call the pitch off, and there was no discussion either way. If they decided, if, you know, if they wanted to go with their breaking ball, so be it. And then turn, during the course, after a game, I know our pitching coaches, and we, we've had some good ones, you know, it said, why did you make that call? And then there's, there was kind of dialogue back and forth. The pro game is totally different, uh, which I'm, I'm excited. These, these young men, 
that are behind the dish and pitches. They the pitches are obviously you know privy to their advanced scouting report. The pitches obviously are they know better who they are, and the catchers are educated as well as how to how to attack the hitter as well as what the pitcher's stuff is. So um, I, I think the transition from the high school kid that had the game call for him or the college kid that had the game call for him, there's a transition when you go into pro ball because you're on your own. You're on your own. And I think that's there is a learning curve there as well. And so should we be – is it college baseball's role? Because I think Liam Bowen, um, the head coach at UMBC, he was on our show Wednesday, and he said, you know, college baseball is the terminal level for, you know, 90-plus percent players. Like they're not going to go into pro baseball. So with college baseball being the terminal level, do you guys feel like you have a duty to develop pitchers to like give them the skills to be able to hit the ground running and call their own game of the pro pro game? Or do you sort of feel more, you know, like we need to win games if our pitching coach calling it gives us a better chance and that's what we do. Where do you feel like, and, and this is not just for St. John's, but mm-hmm. in general, I'm trying to figure out what the mindset is because for me, developmentally, I learned in, in pro ball, especially very vividly from you know risk and reward understanding that I was going to get released if I didn't pitch well for a couple weeks the stakes were amplified where I was very tuned into every pitch I was calling and why because they could cost me my job especially as a reliever you have a three-run jack that really messes up your ERA and your ERA is your lifeline a lot of times so do colleges have a duty to their pitchers to prepare them for pro ball or is it not that Uh, way uh, I, I don't. I, I don't see it that way. I guess the, with, with, the, with the pitching coach or, the, or that particular program is they're trying to win baseball games. I think that's the ultimate. Now, we've had guys in our program that were good enough that we felt comfortable enough that they they were they they threw the ball threw the ball better when we weren't calling pitches. I think it's a really a case by case basis, and there has to be that trust between that pitching coach or staff and that pitcher. Um, I guess coaches like to be in control. I just, I, I think this is, this has evolved over the years. Um, and when I say control, we can control the running game by calling pitches. And it's basically what our rule was, you know, Hey, listen, you could, you could shake off, but if we have a pickoff on or a long hold on or a step, you got to do it because yeah. we're relying on that. We're trying to read something. So we want to be able to control the game from that factor, even probably more so than pitch calling. And who 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 knows better than that pitcher what his stuff should be? It's it's an accountability. I think there's a self reliance uh, that a pitcher sometimes it's like you know he's he's so reliant on what the pitching coach is telling him to do he becomes robotic and he's not thinking. Yeah. So he's not thinking. So he may not be competing. You know. Um, and I I think that's something that uh, you know I was kind of leaning towards when I was even in. in as coaching us, maybe just let these guys go, let them go, or give dummy signs. You know, a lot of a lot of pitch to me, pitching, pitching, hitting, fielding. Uh, it, it's about rhythm and timing, rhythm and timing, and pitching. To you know, from a delivery standpoint, it's rhythm and timing. You know, and and, and getting that ball when that foot strike goes, where the arm's going to be. But it's also rhythm and timing between pitcher and catcher. The pitching coach in a in a and the catcher can destroy that timing. So, mm-hmm. uh, same thing with game and hitting. It's rhythm and timing, getting in time, 
putting a good swing on it, feeling, it's rhythm and timing, it's your prep step, reading the ball, getting a time to get picked that right hop up. So movement. And uh, we, we make, sometimes we make the game very robotic instead of fluid. And we waste well, interesting. time. Yeah. Go ahead, Dan. Well, and my analogy that I used, you know, last show, which is kind of like Google Maps. And when you're in a new town and you don't know the, you know, and obviously, Ed, you're going to be in a lot of new minor league towns and trying to figure out how to get around them. And when you don't have a map, you're suddenly looking at what? All right. You got, you know, the guy at the hotel said, I need to take a left at this church and then I need to take a right on Elm and then I need to go, you know, third exit of the roundabout. And when you start getting lost, you start to really pay attention to your scenery. And that's how I feel is a, is a pretty re reasonable analogy for pitch calling as a pitcher. Like if I'm out there on my own, it's on me and it's my career too. And you're, you start to really get locked into why am I choosing it? And for me, teaching young kids, I just say, look, you have to have a solid reason for every pitch you call. And it's like, I just want to mix it up. Isn't a good enough reason. It's more like I went fastball up and in because I went away, I went away twice and I kind of felt like he maybe be leaning over the plate. And then if I missed, I was going to go change up down. Like that's a valid reason. You, you kind of see one step at a time, but when a, a pitch is called for you, even if you, you know, there's a co co communication between the coach and yourself, there's still like this, you don't have to look at any of that stuff. It's like you have Google maps and you know, I can just tell take a left when they tell me to take a left. I'll throw a slider when they throw me, tell me to throw a slider. And I think, I feel like you just miss out on a lot of little cues, which again, if you're just trying to win a baseball game, doesn't as much matter. But if you're trying to help this kid foster that ability to win future games or when he's out on his own, then I think it matters. I mean, do you feel like one of the sentiments I heard from some youth coaches was getting, you're just throwing these kids to the wolves, not calling games for them when they're 10, when they're 14. Uh, to, to me, you know, the, the learning, you have to go through something. You got to fall down. You got to get up. You got to fall down. You got to get up. That's the way you learn. If you're relying on somebody all the time to tell you what to do, to me, you're not really learning. I agree. <laughs> you're reacting to what he's telling you. So it, you know, it inhibits the person's development process. Uh, you know, it's, it, that's the way I feel. Um, you fall into this trap being, in, being a college coach last year and, what you've done and having good pitching coaches like I was blessed to have, you know, success might change. Yeah. Now, are you curtailing or hurting the player's development to recognize the, the bat, to uh, understand his stuff? You hope your coaches are fostering that and cultivating that. But from a game planning standpoint and adjustment standpoint, well, who's making it? The pitcher ain't. Coach is making it. Yeah. So the coach, you know, with his experience, makes those adjustments, whereas that person is reliant on the coach. Um, so it, it doesn't inhibit his, his, his development to be a pitcher. So when he goes out to Pro Bowl, I think there's sometimes there's, a, especially that new high school pitcher that enters the pro profession or the college kid, uh, there's a little bit of a transition. Yeah. Well, and I wonder also if there's like a bias because like for me, I was kind of a, a hard four seamer, like high spin rate guy, curveball, um, pitched in, pitched up. So even if like, I think I'm a pretty smart baseball dude, I know I can call a decent game for kids. 
Um, but at the same time, if you have like a pitcher, a young guy who doesn't throw real hard, who kind of sinks it, has to live off the edges of the plate, completely different skill set than what I pitched with. There's going to be, I feel like, some bias for me to when, you know, we really need a punch out to maybe call the game that I would call for myself rather than really be in his shoes and understand how he's going to pitch. And if you're a, a staff of 12 pitchers, how do I suddenly become even understanding his stuff and, and what he can do and, and having a good relationship with him? I feel like it's still tough when those like games on the line pitches to in that four seconds that you have to call that pitch to be like, that's the perfect pitch for him and that hitter and the catcher rather than me. Like I don't belong in that transaction, but I think there's always going to be some bias and tie this kind of segues into what um, we talked about, which is like, like you're a smaller guy. You're like a second baseman, David Eckstein, spark plug, Dustin Pedroia kind of player. That was who you were. How do you fall out of that trap of trying to be someone that you're not? Um, you have to fail and you have to learn and see. Uh, I think I told you the story, how, how it worked for me was when I went to um, my first batting practice. And this is a good story for him to share, too, because from his perspective, my first batting practice in professional baseball, I saw somehow I was in groups that there was like an ex-big leaguer and rehab guys, and they were hitting the ball so far. And before I took even took my first round, I'm like, I'm like, oh crap! Like I can't even hit the ball. I, it's gonna take me five times to hit the ball. Like the one time they just hit it, four hundred fifty. You'll be on stroke three. <laughs> so in college, you don't see that. So like, I don't care. Like that's where the profession, the tools are so different. Um, and I has had to like say, hey, I have to be better at what I can control more so than everybody else because the only thing I can really be better at is what I'm in control of, you know, knowing myself, knowing what I can do, knowing my game. So for me, it was, you know, to put solid contact and spray the ball around the field, you know, you, you know, um, so that's what happened. And, you know, it's funny after that day, I think I, uh, I, I, uh, I remember calling my dad and I was actually in tears. I was like, dad, I was coming off an injury and I said, Tad, this is, this is different, man. This is like, I don't know. Cause I had a rough, you know, up and down college career. And, you know, at times I was, you know, lacking some confidence and he was like, just hang in there, man. And you, you'll, you know, there's a place for baseball players. And that's when I learned really, I learned it a little too late that, um, to find yourself as a player, you have to be, you have to know what you're in control of. And ultimately it's not much, but you have to know yourself too with that. So there has to be a good reflection. Um, so did you have that urge to, watching that BP to try to do what they were going to do? You had to probably fight that. Like, cause what happens if you start, you know, dropping your back shoulder and trying to increase your launch angle? Like what happens to Ty Blankmeyer if he does that? I'd probably make myself like, my, fly out my, a bunch? my approach would be I'd hit 300 foot fly balls. Those are out. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be much. Um, but that's like, just, that's just more or less knowing yourself. So I think what, that to your question, go ahead. And what was, and what was your system? I mean, that's a question for both of you at St. John's. How did you help guys understand who they were? I mean, you, cause you coached Mo Vaughn, 
you coach who could put those balls, I mean, into, you know, into the Long Island sound. If I'm, I lived on Long Island for a summer playing for the Ducks, but I don't, is that the right term? Could you hit on the Long Island sound? Is that the right you direction? Could. You could, you could. Yeah. But then you also had guys like Craig Biggio, um, very different player, even though he still had some, you know, some pop, but um, yeah. how did, how did yeah, you help guys? Right yeah, right there. How did you help guys figure out who they were? You know, you try to you try to teach them to. I think Ty said it pretty good. I'm not going to say individualize, but um, you got to understand who you are as a ball player, what you can do, what you can't do, um, and that complemented with success often carries you. I mean, um, you don't when you have a player of, of, of a, a like a Mo Vaughn that has that had 80 power. Well, I didn't teach him the 80 power. Okay, when you talk about some of these guys that are advanced, you you start talking about more advanced things. Okay, maybe like approach. Okay, maybe like okay, here's your but should be a batting practice routine. Okay, and try to identify little small things that will help them uh, keep them in their groove or keep them in their success mode. Um, we had a player named John Morris that played for me and transitioned I played several years in the major leagues um, uh, with the Royals and the Cardinals and he had you know it was like you know okay I want to do uh, you know flips on the outer half and I want to work the tape to the outer half you know so you try to I guess the best way to do it is you're not guys like this they they're, they're good because they're good Joe yeah. Panic, but what you try to do is is find things that they can go to when they're not feeling right to help them along, and more more importantly, I think from a standpoint of okay, uh, the approach, the approach to hitting, more the mental side to hitting, uh, you know about their at bats. What are you looking for? Uh, do I ambush this thing? Here, here's you know you, you know you talk about you know pitcher hitter competition. What are they going to try to do to you? So you can get more advanced versus some guys that are not a, when you're talking about, you may have to do and identify some mechanical things that they have to work on. So it's really a case by case basis based on each player. And you also, I think what's important is when you identify these players, you know, whether when you recruit them, whether you sign them in Ty's case, um, you know, you, you, you've done it for a reason. Okay. They, they have certain skill sets that you like. Now yeah. what you're trying to do is polish those skill sets up, you know, so you have to identify it. And hopefully that student, uh, that student or that player knows what his strengths are and plays within his strengths. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And the talk about being on the pro side, you know, when you were in spring training for a month and you, you didn't have the whole group there, but you had basically what quote unquote prospects and the big leaguers, the guys with the real, like the, the guys that are highly regarded talent wise, did you see the difference? I mean, I know what I saw in spring training with guys I thought were, you know, elite players and just the best guys around. Did you see a difference in their habits and, you know, what separates that guy, maybe the the Alonzos of the world from uh, the kid who's an A-ball but highly regarded player? You know, what do you see? What did you see in your in your time down in, uh, in yeah. spring training with those guys? That's a good question. Uh, first of all, you know, when I was I was down for uh, about three weeks to the uh, mini camp, um, 
And the mini camp, uh, there was prior to that was the major league protection camp, which I was not involved with. Uh, and then spent four days with the full camp. Um, and our coordinators do a very good job of kind of organizing their staff, if you will, um, to help develop these players. And I think that it, it starts with developing a, a quality practice habits more than anything else. Then identifying the plan for that particular individual. Now, again, you're talking about me coming into an organization for the first time, um, and I'm a sponge trying to take in all this information. Um, all I could, all I tried to do is, especially is, I mean, I was involved with certain aspects of it, but what I wanted to do is, as best I possibly can, see see what see what these guys, what the talent level was. So, and we have, we have, I think we. The organization has some impressive guys, and and you when you watch a guy move, throw, run, hit, and batting practice, you know you you can see there's some special tools there. Didn't right. get a chance to see him play, you know. So tools are one thing, and how the tools equate to game are that's the other thing. And the big thing is consistency, um, and that's you we want to make it to the big leagues. As you progress to the levels, you show consistency in your game, and then you start. You continue to advance, and that's how you get to the big leagues. Um, so, um, I guess it's a long-winded question. I never got to the point of really isolating certain guys. I was taking it all in, uh, but uh, you know, talent plays—that's for sure. I'd rather have guys that that type of talent and work with them and let them play and let them figure it out. But. Uh, uh, that's that, that's kind of what I saw. Well, and so you were the USA uh, collegiate national coach in 2015. So you got to see a lot of the best you know, coach, a lot of the best players in the country. Um, and I'm sure a lot of those have gone on to be established major leaguers. Did you see any following up with the guys that have either made it or not made it since then? Have you been surprised at some of the guys who maybe cracked the big leagues or still hanging around or maybe surprised some of the guys that didn't end up panning out? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, that 2015 team, uh, we had several first-rounders. Um, some took a little longer to get there than others. There was one player that made it before anybody else that I wouldn't thought would have made it. It was a guy by the name of Garrett Hampson at a Long Beach State. Good player, uh, good shortstop, second baseman when we had him but well, at a Long Beach State. But he's, now he hasn't been a staple in the uh, Rocky organization, but he's played a lot and he's been up and down. Um, the one guy that uh, I, would, I thought was on a, would have been on a faster track was Corey Ray out of, um, out of Louisville. Chicago and, kid. Yes, he is. Yes, and and what, what a wonderful kid he is. And he's a hardworking kid, great personality. Very good skill set. He had a very good summer for us with the national team. Uh, now, I haven't followed his career specifically, but uh, I don't know whether it's injuries, but uh, I, I thought he would I, I thought he would, would be there by now. Um, um, but again, uh, we had a kid by the name of Matt Theis out of, uh, out of Virginia that was a, kind of our third catcher. That was a good player, but we kind of picked him up late. He, he played on the Virginia team that won a national championship. And, uh, you know, he, he was the kind of guy I would identify when I talked to scouting departments that I, if I had to give one at bat, I'd give it to this kid. You know, he was just one of those type of guys. A.J. Puck, you guys probably know now. <clears throat> A.J. Mm -hmm. was a big, 
Uh, he was this, uh, and Logan Shaw was the ace of that staff. AJ was number two uh, on uh, Kevin O'Sullivan's staff, but AJ's big six foot eight, six foot seven left-hander that throws absolute gas, and he he's on the staff of Oakland now. Um, so um, there's some guys still filtering filtering up and through the system. But the 2010 team, uh, we had some certainly some house household names on our you know. Uh, on our on our team, uh, you know, the, Garrett Cole was one. Uh, Sonny Gray was another. Matt Barnes was another. Noe Ramirez was another. Nick Ramirez was another. Um, George Springer, George, Jackie Bradley George Jr. George Springer, Jackie Bradley Jr., Anthony Rendon, C.J. Crone. Um, I'm sure I'm going to miss a couple, but uh, Mickey Mattuck. Uh, we had a lot of guys that, that are big league players. So, uh, yeah, uh, it, it comes and goes in cycles uh, when, it, when it comes to that. And some guys that you think are on that fast track take a little longer. And some guys that all of a sudden they just, whoop, they burst through and they just, sometimes it's, it's a lot to do with timing as well in the organization, what they have in front. And also it's also development, development. Yeah. Well, there was some, some news, uh, I actually do some consulting work for an aviation company and the, the news story about Roy Halliday's crash. Um, I guess there was some further information that came out recently um, about him just like being close to the water, doing a lot of like sort of risky maneuvers, but um, it brought back up the memory of Roy Halliday, who was one of those pitchers that I think all of us followed and just all of us were enamored with just how impeccable his work ethic was, just the way he carried himself. Like Ty, you said, never high, never low, right? Just, just cruising along. Um, Ty, what are some, are there any other big leaguers like Roy Halladay that you looked up when you were young, looked up to when you were young that, um, you're like, that's, that's how I should be, you know, besides the guys in your dugout, who else did you as a young player, knowing that you weren't going to be six, six and, you know, put balls, um, into the sound, who are the guys that you, um, looked up to modeled your game after? Well, um, I didn't know I was going to be 6'6". I thought I was at one point. But um, growing up in New York, um, Derek Jeter was like the epitome of it. I mean, he was you know, just the way he played the game. Uh, David Eckstein was probably the, the most. Um, and I'm still curious about David Eckstein. I always ask like the older scouts in that area about how he did it with like a 30 arm and kind of how he played in the World Series. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Well, Biggio was a guy growing up I'd watch a lot just because of the connection to the family. Um, well, I'll share one of mine, and this is a kind of a segue into the next topic I want to cover, which is I, w- I grew up a Braves fan. I don't really have a team that I've followed for the last – since the Braves kind of stopped being like the Braves, like Smoltz, Glavin, Maddox, Andrew Jones, Chipper Jones. Like they were – I followed them because I loved the players. Like they were really exciting in the 90s. When they started to like become a different team, I kind of was growing up anyway. And but anyway, one of my my two were Ma- Greg Maddox and John Smoltz on the pitching side. They were my favorites. And now Smoltz is a often embattled uh, a broadcast announcer. People are constantly on Smoltz about Smoltz hates the new game. Smoltz is old. He needs to like he needs to get with it. Why is he on TV? I when I listen to John Smoltz. I hear, I hear the, the little bit of disdain for the new baseball game. I hear it. At the same time, I still hear a lot of good insight from him. I also hear like the little like 
tidbits that he gets wrong, whatever. And of course, it's hard to be a broadcaster. It's hard to be a podcaster, to be just perfectly honest. Like, you're not going to say everything right with the, the scrutiny that we're all under in the media. Um, but for me, John Smoltz is sort of like an example of an old school guy who is obviously, I mean, he's a Hall of Fame pitcher, um, who's maybe struggling to understand the new game maybe struggling with does he love the new game, which I think it's okay to not love the new game if you don't, like, he's played enough baseball to be allowed to have an opinion on the new game, right? It's changed. Um, how do you guys both feel about the new game and how it's changing and where you think it's going? Um, I, I, I think the arts and science will, will meet at some point. But I think there's attributes of the game, and right now it's meeting in the back alley with like a, yeah, you know, with a, with a switchblade. <laughs> I think, like, I think there's elements of the game that are not going to go away. Like the the element of now pitch, um, how we can classify pitches and understand the like the of of, of uh, pitchers' body movements and stuff, and the development of pitching is way ahead of hitting. So. I like the aspect of pitching, and I like where it's going. I think there, it's, there needs to be a balance still. And I heard this, and this made a lot of sense to me, was um, having, a, having a track meet and not having a stopwatch is, not like ha- is now like having uh, a pitcher throw a bullpen and not having a track meet or rap soto because they can get that pitch that right. However mm. – no, but we keep, we keep going, keep going, keep going. Is can track that well. I'm not saying that's how you get the pitcher better, but that's how I'm saying you could understand the pitch. Like okay. they're, 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 they're like it, it's it's that accurate. Like once you get them, the culmination of data. But I think um, there needs to be a balance of it. So I I don't think everyone can process the information that way. But I think. To un- the coach to understand it and see what he's working with and understand uh, a different way to make adjustments, that is a good way to look at it. Now, the hitting side is, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's fighting itself right now. <laughs> no. Oh, please, please, Ty, go on your soapbox because I'm, I'm, I feel like we're going to be on the same page here. I think it's like fighting itself right now. Um, and the scary thing to me is like everybody knows everything about hitting. And that's really scary because – you know, I, I see him and, you know, he's been in the game 65 years, but he doesn't care to go listen to a guy that is not even half his age about baseball in general. So now we have these, you know, 30-year-old guys that have figured out hitting, have unlocked the keys to hitting in their mind. You know, I think there has to be an element of open-mindedness and say, hey, there's not one way to do this. And, and that's on the pitching side too, but I think more so on the hitting side, there has to be, like, I, I put it like this. There has to be an element of, like, hey, hitting is now you have to be able to speak multiple languages. You can't speak one language of hitting because you will not relate to um, 50% of the guys if you know one way. But if you know the, a, a couple of different ways, styles now, I think you could resonate with more guys and I think it ultimately comes down to making the relationship with the player. But I think that's where the, what's on what I'm talking about, the arts and science have to meet. And I think it will meet because people are going to understand they're going to get so fed up with this 
that it's like we're gonna what are we doing we're, we're hurting more than we're helping sometimes yeah ed where do you fall well let me give him my soliloquy here um <laughs> old school versus new school i guess we, we've heard that term mm-hmm. old school experience new school information are we are we we agree on that of it we agree yeah i do okay what is experience Experience is the ability of being in as a player, experiencing the situation as a player, maybe a big league coach, a guy that's played in the big leagues for 18 years. Uh, he has coached or developed several players. Okay. Um, that, you know, you, that, that you really can't teach. That, that you have to go through that whole element of experience. And being able to evaluate being able to work with players to see the success and failure. Okay. That's one part of it. Then you have inf- the information or the old or the new school, the information. I kind of equate the information like this. Um, picture a highway and the cars are going a hundred miles an hour. And if the, the information that's being transmitted, okay. It, it's almost like at the internet. It's just the volumes of it. It's fast. Um, it's new technology and every other day it's getting newer and newer from the same token. The problem I'm having with it or some of the experienced people are having with it. Okay. Is equated to a highway that's in bumper to bumper traffic. There's just so much information that you have to synthesize what's right, what's wrong, uh, what works with what. So I think that's the, that's the dilemma we have, that information highway and the log jam in that highway and trying to find what works with the experienced person, okay, to unlock the highway keys to figure out what's going on with this information. It becomes simply, okay, problem solving. The information can unlock some problems if you know what, if you know what to look for. If you can synthesize the information, the same token, that experienced person can eyeball it as well. Now, what we have is that we can eyeball it and we can put, put the information together and, okay, problem solve it. Then you have something there. Um, I think the direction of the game is good, but I think the synthesis of information has to improve. Uh, you know, you hear some of these formulas um, you get some of this data, TrackMan data, uh, and you're saying to yourself, oh, I, I see some things, but how does it all correlate? And forget about everything else. I think the players that play the games are not robots. They're human beings. So you have to factor that into the equation. So it's, it's not an exact science. I like the way Ty spoke about it, the art and science. The artist is the person with the experience. The scientist is the person with the information. We got to find that uh, art science guy that can 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 utilize both effectively, and most importantly, communicate it in a succinct manner. You can have all the information in the world, and you can present all this stuff, and you can really screw a player up as well. So, being able to communicate that information in this succinct and in comfortable manner to help the player improve. That's important. I think the combination of video and 
I think the Edgetronics is a good good tool. You have Rapsodo, you have TrackMan, um, you have um, the KVest, uh, you have Blast Motion. I mean, you have the stopwatch, <laughs> you have the radar, well, TrackMan radar gun. But there's just there's so many tools. Um, the synthesis of information is, is, is crucial in unlocking the key and in, in finding what what are the elements of the formulas that actually show benefit. So, yeah, I, the, I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued by it. I love it. Yeah, the the information is great. It's it's the application of a lot of the information that I see a lot of contention. Ty, you're probably um, you, you're you're a younger guy, like you're Dan and I, closer to age, and Dan and I. So you kind of we're on the, I guess, the older side of the guys that have really been involved in the in the tech and the data of baseball. Um, whereas Ed, you've been around, you know, a while in baseball so long. Like, yeah, we're annoying millennials. Is, we're the annoying we're millennials. Annoying you, that obviously, just Snapchat. So what are you saying? I'm yeah. old, huh? I'm an old school. <laughs> I well, I'm I'm feel like I'm definitely more on your side of the baseball. The the how Ty put it, the artist of you know doing it and having your own experience and and kind of if you can communicate those experiences uh, effectively to someone, I, I find a lot more value in that than, than what I would get off of some of that data stuff. But the, all the new information is being, is being thrown at a lot of, a lot of kids and coaches and, and players um, as, as absolutes and facts. And this is, this is the data and you need to do it like that. And I, I, I use a I use an analogy with a lot of a lot of people when I talk to it. I said I would much rather have a guy come to my house the that's that's a plumber and work on my sink than a guy who's read about plumbing and has never worked on a sink. And the guy that's read about plumbing, it's not to say that he doesn't know plumbing, but I want the guy that can troubleshoot, the guy that can that can take what he knows and his experience and work that into the situation. And that's, I think it's relevant in, in baseball in that, yeah, there's, there's plenty of guys that are, that are very well versed in, in this technology and, and a lot of the information that have never seen 95 miles an hour coming at them and felt how they need to react and their body reacts and, and realizing that there's a reason everybody says hitting is the hardest thing to do in all of sports. And Ty, you, you hit it on the head where you know, the pitching stuff is great because pitching is very proactive. You know, you control the baseball and you, and you're in control of, of 90% of what's happening when you're on the mound hitting, you're in control of very little. And it's, it's a tough, it's a tough thing to convey to someone when you, you can do everything right hitting and still be wrong and still fail. So it's a, it's hard to, to, to convey that with information as, as opposed to experience. Which that also goes back to pitch calling, which we all agree how hard it is to hit, but yet some of the youth coaches are like, if I don't call the pitch, we're going to, you know, he's going to get shelled, which is crazy. But I mean, the big thing I see as a, as a non hitting guy in the, the only non hitting guy in this conversation is I, I see a almost desperation to be heard by some of these big leaguers and and it's a weird thing because I think all of us plebeians understand that if we tweet a big leaguer past or present, they're not really going to tweet back at us. Like they don't care who we are. Right. I mean, they've been dealing with fans their whole lives and there's some, obviously there's 
really nice people, but they're just, you tweet a celebrity, you don't really get a response, right? But yet now there seems like there's a change where there's a lot of former big leaguers who are starting to stir. So they see what's going on. They're starting to interact. And it seems like a lot of them just really want to be heard. And when they offer an opinion about hitting, they get attacked. And so then it's like the old man yelling at clouds and the old man yelling at the young kids. It's like, why do you know, old guy? And he's like, I know a lot. And then it's becoming more and more divisive where I know if Ed, I walked into your office and I'm one of these guys that I just, I'm now in a hitting guru and I start telling, telling you how to hit, you're just going to tune me out. Every human would do that. But if I, if I walk into your office as a young hitting guru and I say, Hey Ed, um, tell me about hitting. Like, how do you teach your guys? How do you do this? How do you, and, and suddenly you feel heard and your opinions valued. You'll probably listen to some of the new weird stuff that I have to say. And that's how human beings are. And it seems like there's a lot of communication breakdown where no one's listening to anyone. Old guys are trying to help, which is, I think, really positive for the community. These big league guys are trying to offer some info. And then the young guys are like, nah, you don't know what you're talking about, A-Rod. And it's like, but, but I do. And then this, this is back and forth, where if you can say, hey, A-Rod clearly knows what he's doing, clearly knows how to hit. The way he's describing it maybe isn't the way he did it in a game, but he's just trying to share it and convey it. Okay. Um, but also, this is maybe what happens actually when we slow down in slow motion. And you can marry what A-Rod's saying with what I'm teaching. Then I feel like everyone gets along. But it just seems like there's this fundamental, no one's listening to each other. People don't feel heard. And then when people don't feel heard, just like in a, a fight with your girlfriend, your wife, your husband, when the, the conversation goes to, you're not listening to me, just like it just gets worse, right? I, uh, I, you know, I guess with, with what's, what's out there, let's, instant information has caused a lot of problems uh, with the Twitter, uh, with the various, you know, Facebook, the various for, forms that are out there. Everybody has an opportunity to express their opinion. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, it's, it's mind boggling. Uh, you know, this is the United States, free speech, you can express what you want. Um, um, my feeling is always, no matter, you know, oh, I'm, I'm not an old school, new school guy. I, I want to learn baseball. If there's something new and different, I want to be exposed to it. And I can draw my conclusion accordingly. I think you have to, you really have to keep an open mind and everything you do. Um, there may be a better way. There may not be a better way. Um, you know, People degrade to disagree. Um, the bottom line, it's result. What is the result? That's what you're looking for. Um, what is your What is your individual result? Is the player improving from an organizational standpoint? Then obviously you're doing something right. If he's not improving, okay, you better do some troubleshooting to figure out what's going on. So, um, and that includes, I don't care where it is, whether it's professional baseball, whether it's college baseball, okay, I think you have to have a growth mindset. You have to listen nobody's wrong. Okay. Okay. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. Um, I agree. Nowadays, there are a lot of different hitting philosophies, but, uh, you know, one size doesn't fit all. That's for sure. And we have to, we have to understand that the goal and the objective is to make that person the best they can be. That's the bottom line, whatever, whatever it is, that's what you want to do. Ty, do you feel like you see swings being taught that don't really exist in the real world? What do you mean? Like I've seen, I've seen 
like, Hey, this is, you know, this is what we should be doing. I've seen hit, I've seen swings on Instagram, on Twitter. Like this is a kid I'm working with. And I'm like, I've never seen a pro hitter like swing like that. Has that been your experience? Or have you seen some of those where it's like, I get what you're saying. Like I, I hear the biomechanical stuff you're talking about and it sounds like it makes sense, but I've never pitched against a guy who swung like that. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it comes from the, the video. So there's feel versus real, right? And what people are feeling is different than what they're actually doing. So I think that help it happens a lot. And I also think the video camera is great because it doesn't lie but you can't teach everybody to move the same way because what what you're cueing for them to move like what they see in the video camera they're not gonna feel it the same way in their head and they're gonna process it different because their perception is completely different so i think that happens because a lot of the guys, their, per, their perception is way off. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I think, yeah, you go to scouting events and, you know, a quick note I'll write sometimes is like Twitter swing because it's not like a flowing, fluid swing. It's not their, you know, it's been coaching out of it. And everybody now has, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, whatever you want to say has a hitting guru. So mm-hmm. the one thing I noticed is, I don't notice it's been told to me and then I look back in history and it, and it, you know, it works. Hitters hit. If you could yeah. hit, you could hit. Yeah. And so they might be. And, and the other thing is they're absolute cage rats. They want to learn. They want more baseball, more baseball. They spent so much time in the cage. So between the will to learn to hit and want to hit and just the, just the ability to hit is, is more, what I think is where it's coming from. I think you can't, you know, there's hitters and swingers, you know, let's find the hitter over the swinger. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you, you know, you guys are both in professional baseball and I may, I had said something on Twitter a while back about professional baseball. I said, you see the, the trend is younger players in the big leagues and then less and you know, I don't want to say less and less American players, but you see more guys from outside of this country progressing faster and the background on all those guys is, you know, they're, they're, they were poor. They, they came, they, they, you know, they, they were brought up, they work hard. They, you know, whether it's Dominican, Puerto Rico, Venezuela, some of these countries where, I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but I got to imagine they're not whipping out the rap Soto on the backfields, you know, on the playgrounds of the Dominican, like these guys are growing up playing baseball. And they're just they're they're learning and they're playing against kids that are older than them and they're competing and it's it feels yeah. very raw and very real and it and you know I use a lot of uh, like a Rocky Balboa analogy it's like you, they're they're in the fire and they're fighting and they're fighting to to get better and it's not a it's not a manufactured uh, ball player and you know I don't know if we've seen one of the, you know somebody make it to the Billies that that has grown up through this, this new wave of technology yet, or, you know, this new similar to a swinger as opposed to a hitter, like Ty said, but I, I, you know, as a guy that's, that was in professional baseball and you guys can talk a lot about this too. I see the guys that are being successful. They're, 
they're doers. They're, they're like Ty said, they're in the cage They're They want to learn, like they're learning, but they're doing it by, by learning. And they, and they didn't, they didn't come up with this, uh, you know, this information first. It was, a uh, it was, and they took to it as an art first. I agree. It's kind of like, uh, you know how people say, oh, I just had that aha moment. Like it just clicked for me today, right? You hear people say that. And what people misconstrue out of that statement is the amount of time that those hitters spent in the cage trying to get that feel. It doesn't just happen like, hey, I hit three times a week and all of a sudden, oh, this clicked for me. You know, what really happens is I spent so much time and I started to understand and that compound of work got me to that feeling, got me to what learns for me. That's how you're really learning yourself. So, I mean, I think more than anything else, like the compound of, uh, of work, like I read that book, uh, I'm reading that book, Swing Kings, and the commonality between J.D. Martinez, Justin Turner, like those guys wanted the answer. They searched for it, and they could always hit. They can always hit, and they had the drive to, to get better, to unlock some power. So don't you think that's like two that the two biggest keys to the, to the recipe is to get – the dude that can hit, back to ball skills, all that, and then the dude that just wants to just is a cage rat. Like that's the best case scenario right there. Yeah, so. the ability to hit is is very underrated, and especially in the youth side. Um, Which is such a weird that. thing to say. The ability to hit is such an underrated skill for a, a baseball hitter. <laughs> it is though. It's you. You really see so like weird. I see I see youth guys with with quote unquote great swings that can't hit. And I see guys, I see these young kids with, they, they've never been taught a thing in their life, but there's not, uh, there's not a pitch I can throw them that they won't get a barrel to. And they won't mm. just hand-eye barrel it up. And it's, it's those kids you're watching, and it's like, man, if this kid would just apply a little bit more, he's going to go places that nobody else can go because he's got, he's got it. And I, we've said, Dan and I have said it before, like, it's hard to define what quote unquote it is, but you see it. And whether the kid is 10 or he's a, you know, a top prospect for any organization, like he's, he's been successful and he's, and he's figured out what works for him. And then if he's at that top level of prospect or even in the big leagues, he's kind of how you said JD Martinez and Justin Turner, like they searched a little bit more and they went down that, they went down that rabbit hole of, of information to make them to, to make themselves the ultimate player that that they can be. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, 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 that's that's anything though. Like anything in life is, is is like that. If you just stay status quo in your comfort zone, you know, I don't think you, you get you get much better. Ed, how many years would you say, and maybe this isn't the term that you would use, but I, for me, I would use the term probably my first, at least my first year, I was scared, like playing indie ball. I was like a scared pro. How many years would you say you were like a scared head division one coach? Just like, you know, things are new. Like I'm trying to figure it yeah. out. Like, am I doing the right thing? Yeah. You know, it, it takes you a while to get comfortable. I, and anything you do, it's, it's, it's think about just taking a new job. And I've, I've taken a new job. It's new. 
So you're a little bit alarmed. You're you're on alert. Uh, you're concerned about what's coming next. I don't know what's next. Um, so there, uh, there uh, there's there's a lot of apprehension. Uh, a lot of apprehension. I think you have to go through the cycle. Okay, to figure it out, whatever that cycle may be in your job or in pro ball for me um, as a college coach. Um, the one thing in regards to preparation as a college coach, I was an assistant for 15 years. So um, I was around a head coach for several years, so I, I, I had a pretty good handle. The ones that really, I don't want to use the word, are afraid that are the ones that, have one, ones that have to learn on the job right away. It may not have been an assistant underneath somebody that knows what the heck they're doing. Mm -hmm. And they're handing the keys to the car, and they're crashing into the wall sometimes. So, um, and there are there are there are coaches that right away have assumed head coaching responsibilities have done well, but I rather see an apprenticeship first, uh, so that they can adapt a little bit and develop their own coaching philosophy, uh, maybe learn some other nuances of the game. Because I don't think more than anything else, from a coaching perspective, a head coaching perspective, what is the big thing about the position is you got to make that final decision, whatever it may be, in whatever mm -hmm. area you're dealing with. When you start delegating in our profession, baseball, it's you got a pitching coach, you got a hitting coach, and they're running their own organizations, if you will. But you're controlling the whole, you're managing the whole system. Um, so to have some experience and in those areas makes you a better manager because you've been there and done that. Whereas if you just jump into a head coaching position, uh, yeah, administration issues are always an issue. Even to this day, they were issues for me uh, dealing with the administration at times. But, you know, the baseball, it wasn't. It wasn't because I, I, had, a, I had experiences in different areas. I felt more comfortable. And this is a question for you both, but – as a head coach, like you're going to make some decisions that cost your team a game. Like it's just going to happen. Like I've done it. Everyone's done it. Um, as a leader, do you feel like it shows strength or weakness when you can stand before your people and say, Hey, like I take responsibility for that. I own it. I mean, how important of a quality is that for yeah. to get people to follow you? Uh, you can't be afraid to fail. Okay. You as, as a coach, manager, leader, um, one of the biggest strengths you must have, okay, is being humble, okay, and being honest. Because believe me, these young kids nowadays, and you know, you we all once one of them. You can you can you can read right through a person that's lying to you, that's false with you, that's misleading you. So you know, I, I think it takes a lot of courage, and I think you will gain the respect of the players more so than anything else if you say, hey. Guys, I screwed up, man. It's on me. Okay, I think they'd go to war for you more instead of blaming or lying or making an excuse. Uh, I, I think ownership, teaching them ownership, will only give them better ownership and accountability on their end. Yeah, I, I watched, um, there's a Ken Burns documentary. I don't watch too much TV, but my parents recommended it. They said, hey, this thing on the Roosevelt family is awesome. It's about Teddy Roosevelt and then just the yeah. whole, all, all the Roosevelts. And without getting into politics, Bobby and I spar about politics. Bobby loves Donald Trump. I think he's despicable. But even though he makes some 
good moves, some bad moves, whatever. You can't say that everything he does is wrong because it's clearly not. Um, and he does things in his own way. I'm the biggest thing that I, I have issue with him. And it was really refreshing to watch Teddy Roosevelt and learn what an incredible leader he was. It's just a lack of responsibility. I mean, you can't blame everything on anyone, but at the same time, when you have some humility, like you said, and you can say, Hey, whatever it is like, Hey, like this was a thing that we just didn't get exactly right. And we're going to try to be better next time. I think that's an important quality um, for anyone. Cause like you said, when you talk about like some of these big leaguers coming after some of these hitting gurus, how many big leaguers have any of us seen on Twitter say, Hey, like, yeah, I don't know everything. I didn't get everything right. Maybe what I was doing back in the day wasn't the right way to do it. Or maybe what I was doing isn't the right way to teach a kid today. Um, there doesn't seem to be humility in, in a lot of directions sometimes. I think that's, like you said, you're always just trying to learn. Ty, you're always trying to learn that unifying quality and taking responsibility when something you try doesn't work out. seems like it's an important thing to just kind of keep moving through all of this. Well, you, when you make a decision, it's your decision. That's the way I look at it. And um, if you're going to blame that decision on the, on the rest of the troops, so to speak, Morale will go down. You keep. You get to a point where you're gonna you're gonna lose any, any any type of clarity or confidence of your of your organization. You know, uh, you have made a decision for whatever you know, for whatever reason, and you got to own it. Ownership is is is, is something that's uh, loyal. Uh, ownership, communication, and, and uh, are two key factors in any time in any leader in any leader. Yeah, and that was one of the things that you got. You definitely got to read uh, Jim Mattis's book. It's, and I know, like again, everyone in the public eye in the political world, you get people that love him, hate him, whatever. I didn't know anything about General Mattis, so I read his book because I just wanted to hear from him, and I was just really impressed. And he talks about how much he cares about his troops, how his decisions were always factoring in the fact that when I make a decision, like men are going to die; they're not going to go home to their wife and kids. Oh. And he said, like, who am I to make these decisions without having? A, learn from all the generals before me. He's like, I read Caesar. Well, yeah, I read Caesar like I read St. Augustine. Like I read all these, like Genghis Khan. Like he absorbs everything he could read so that when he makes a decision that's going to cost someone their life, he's made it to the absolute best of his ability. That was what I really, I was really impressed with him. And again, I'm not like, I'm not into politics. Um, but as I just try to figure out, okay, here's a guy who's, he gets berated on both sides of the media. What does he actually believe in? you know, what comes out of his mouth, um, you know, you see his process and his process was, I'm going to learn from everyone. And that's going to be picking up a book that's 1200 years old from some warrior. So it's going to have some application to my life today. So that again, when some young man um, needs me to make a decision that might cost him his life, I can go to sleep at night knowing that I at least did my homework for that one guy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to take that a step further, I always say, uh, you know, um, when you and this, this this pertains more specifically to um, dealing with a person or trying to teach a person. Um, the two buzzwords you always hear are care and trust. Uh, care and trust. Okay, Th those are the two things. Uh, if you don't obtain care and trust, then then the wall will drop. They're not going to, the person that you're dealing with is not going to believe you. Okay. Okay. And you're not going to get any place with it. So, you know, um, 
my, my, my message basically is um, the player's got to trust that you care before the, that he cares what you know. Okay, and this is everybody, you know, you have to, that, that, that's, that's a, a staple. I don't, old school, new school, it's about relationships. It's about, about a relationship because you know as well as I do, uh, if you're a hitting guru and the hitting gurus out there, whoever it may be, that person trusts them. <laughs> they have gained that trust. So as a coach, as a leader, okay, you got to gain that person's trust so that he cares and knows that you care about him, but that's where he's going to care what you know, that he trusts you so that you can provide the information you need to, to get this person moving in the right direction. Yeah. So, and that's a process. That's a, that's a process. That's the million-dollar question. How do you gain uh, a person's trust so that he cares what you're going to teach him to help them improve? And that's, that's what the great coaches can do. Yeah, and Ty, I'll, I'll toss it up to you. So were there any moments where maybe you were with a, on a new team or with a new coach or maybe it was an older guy when you were hanging out in the dugout or maybe it was when you were a freshman as a senior, but was there a moment in your career when um, you needed that? Like, you, like, can I trust this guy? Is this guy out to help me? Is this coach really have my back? Was there any moments that you can recall that said, yeah, this was like when that guy, I knew that guy was in my corner or something he, he did? Or she? Um, yeah, I think um, I think. Well, one, that's a sign of a really good teammate or coach that when you feel that. But I think the um, the one the one thing in um, in pro ball, I always the, there was a hitting coach named Joe Thurston. He played in the big leagues when for a little bit. Yeah, Joe. Joey ball game. Yeah. yeah so yeah. he, um, he always like, I knew he cared because, and it was a lot of these guys, I knew they cared because I was like far less talented than a lot, but they, they'd all, he'd always spend time in the cage with me and, and like talk things through and work it out. Even if I wasn't playing every day. So I think it's goes back to like how you treat anyone is how you treat everyone right? How you treat yeah. the janitor in the school is the same way you treat the principal. And that's how I, it was then I really knew that, you know, even Miguel Cairo was the same way with me. Like I knew that they cared because I had an element that I was real and I, I, I knew I wasn't Nick Senzel or Taylor Trammell, but they treated me very similarly and they still wanted the best for my development. And that is sort of what stuck with me in that, in that regard to really know that they cared and it, it made a difference in my development in, in a short amount of time. Yeah. Well guys, we're going to, we're going to wrap here for today, but thank you so much for being on the show. This was an awesome conversation. I think we got deep into a lot of stuff that um, I think our it's viewers are got a lot of good comments. Hours. Yeah. Um, so if you're new to the show, thank you for being here. This is the morning brushback podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. My co-host Bobby Stevens. Thanks so much again to, Ed Blankmeyer and Ty Blankmeyer. I mean, you guys are superb. Really appreciate it. And if you're new, check us out every uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, live here on Twitter at 9 a.m. Eastern. Also, we stream live simultaneously on YouTube. And then you can catch us, including this episode, we'll replay on Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you listen to audio podcasts. So, guys, thanks again. 
Um, man, just a, just a great conversation. And if you're out there, thanks. Uh, and we'll see you here on Monday with our guest, Jeff Fry. Thanks, guys. All right, guys. Thanks. Appreciate it. Appreciate your time. Enjoyed it. Thank yeah. you. You too.